Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. DBC Pierre's Big Snake, Little Snake is a characteristically freewheeling, riotous account of a couple of years the author lived in the Caribbean, spending his time, among other endeavours, conducting an inquiry into risk. In many ways, it's an inquiry that ends up posing more questions than the answers. But since one of its aims is, is apparently to loosen the imaginative straitjacket of so-called mathematical truths, that is perhaps no bad thing. So DBC Pierre considers questions like why we gamble, whether chance can be influenced, whether life's probabilities resist calculation, whether maths can be warped by environmental factors, whether only a fool has a gambling system, what quantum physics has to say about fate, and crucially, what all this has got to do with a little snake and a big snake, not to mention a bat and a parrot for that matter. Big Snake, Little Snake is an extraordinarily fun book, yet with a deep seriousness at its core. Seeking to understand, as it does, how the world can be presented to us as fundamentally indifferent, while also being so clearly and so often asphyxiatingly unfair. DBC Pierre, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you very much. I wish I could borrow the introduction. That's extremely well written. Oh man, you can you can have it. Do what you want with it. <laughs> only I had thought of that. <laughs> um, I'd like to begin with the... Um, the, the setting, if you like, for Big Snake, Little Snake, because it becomes clear quite early on and is sustained throughout the book that the, the Caribbean setting um, and particularly the, the island of Trinidad is sort of fundamental to the, the thoughts and ideas that, um, that, 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 that you write about in this book. Could you talk a little bit about, about that island for people who, who've never visited, like myself, and also I'd like, I'd like what it was about that kind of geography and that sort of tropical environment that, that stimulated the ideas in this book. Sure. Um, just to refresh everyone's impression, uh, Trinidad is one of the larger Caribbean islands, and it sits just off the coast of Venezuela at the top of South America, uh, literally seven miles off the coast. So the on a clear day, they're visible to each other. It's an extremely exotic place. Uh, and that's what took me there in the first place. I was fascinated. I mean, it's a place with manatees in the water and with anacondas on land. Um, it has, I think, the second highest rainfall in its mountain ranges in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so biodiversity is extreme there. It's just a, a next level of uh, of creatures and uh, jungle uh, and beyond that of course it has a fabulous history of of settlement all the way from carib original carib uh, um, what were called carib indians at the time mm -hmm. uh, who have now gone uh, 
and then it was discovered by a succession of Europeans and there was the usual tug of war uh, between the Spaniards and French and English uh, and finally Africans were brought and then East Indians were brought over uh, in the 19th century and so it is the most fabulous melting pot mm. of cultures of music and food and it's such a little paradise of a place that um, all of that has turned out really well mm -hmm. uh, that is to say well it has its its uh, its modern problems as we all do uh, it's the most integrated uh, multiculture that you could find it's fantastic the the cultures have been melded through all their possible variations uh, from white to black and also there's Chinese settlement there's Syrian mm. settlement and so it's just a fabulous example of almost a microcosm of humanity if you like but at the good end because they love mm -hmm. music they like a party they're extremely uh, kind extremely bright uh, people and um, when I went there as I say, I was actually prompted by a book I'd read in my early 20s, which was Papillon mm. by Henri Charrier about uh, the street criminal who was sent from Paris uh, early in the 20th century to Devil's Island, mm. uh, who, according to him, was wrongly accused of a murder. and uh, He was transported to Devil's Island on the, the, uh, off the South American mainland. And he spends the whole book escaping and being <laughs> recaptured. And one of the places he goes to that welcomes him and helps him was Trinidad. I was just so fascinated with the whole region. Where the book comes in is that uh, it is so, so lush and so full of, of different uh, creatures and such a great range of humanity that there's magic there. Mm. And it occurs to me now that all the places with a strong law of magic, of folklore, um, tend to be places with strong nature as well. Mm. I'm thinking of places like Brazil, Trinidad, uh, certain Southeast Asian places, even Ireland, let's say, uh, places with a, who, who, who built a strong sense of magic almost animist mm. in um, in having different powers to appeal to um, and that's why the book kind of arose afterwards just because it was a place that's extremely magical and remains so today whereas in our country I mean Britain used to be like that but we've forgotten and of course now mm. it's been steamrolled by the, the new tyranny of science Mm -hmm. which I agree with science, but of course it's much less fun and life has gotten much more about the numbers. Uh -huh. And so the book is uh, is kind of a, a pushback against the numbers and, and to see if we can recapture some of the ideas that, that, um, that made us a magical creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that does seem to be one of the kind of constant tensions in the book, I guess, is between um this kind of the idea of science and mathematical probability and things like that which you uh, as you just said which you which you don't reject but also this 
I guess, facet of human experience, which seems to be ignored somehow by science or it's all sort of neglected. Um, and there's, there's a moment where I think you actually say something like, you know, you're not, um, there you go, I've got the quote here. In fact, you say our only bitch at science is for its refusal to admit to reality the things its tools can't yet define. Yeah, exactly right. And, um, you know, that's a main thrust of the book. If, if you think uh, of the, there's quite a visible horde of uh, skeptics, like mm -hmm. professional skeptics. So whenever you see a ghost story or someone writing about astrology or any of these things which would be considered kind of occult or paranormal, mm -hmm. um, there will always be the kind of poster boy skeptic who you know is offering a million dollars for for anyone to prove any of these things. And it seems like hey, on the one hand, uh, those skeptics are as religious and mm -hmm. zealous as the people proposing uh, the opposite, which is that ghosts or you know these paranormal events exist. But for me, I don't. I actually don't find there's a there's a problem between science and those things. Mm -hmm. For instance, people see apparitions, and that's fine. I don't think. We can deny that they see them, but I'm quite prepared to accept that in future we discover, you know, a function of the brain that mm -hmm. makes that happen. Um, likewise, extreme coincidences and telepathy and things like this, which they say, you know, is impossible and can't be proven. I'm perfectly happy to say, well, it can still happen mathematically. They're mm -hmm. just extreme coincidences. So I, I don't find a problem with uh, the science. And I'm happy to agree that these are all logical, uh, logical and explainable occurrences. Mm -hmm. What upsets me is that they can't, for the time being, be properly explained to the satisfaction of, of uh, laboratory mm. uh, clinician standard. And so they say they don't exist. And it's, uh, it seems to me a really small minded argument. What mm -hmm. one one, um, one thinker that uh, kept coming to mind while I was reading the book, and who you actually sort of name check a couple of times, is um, is Carl Jung. Um, and uh, what the, the phrase of his that kept coming to me um, when he was talking along similar lines, but he said sort of whatever acts is actual. So, you know, so it, just because, um, you know, when people see ghosts, just because, as you say, that we might be able to disprove that scientifically, that doesn't negate the very real psychological impact that has on the person experiencing it and therefore the world around them. Exactly, exactly right. And I think we're also on the verge. I've, I've seen a couple things entering the culture now from science, from medical science particularly, we're on the verge of discovering that, you know, we've spent a century being told that certain things are good for all people and that certain things are a risk for all people equally. And that statistically we have a one in three chance of this happening. We have a one in seven chance of something else happening. Um, I think we're, we're now gonna begin to admit that actually the individual can have extremely different experiences mm. and be extremely, uh, extremely different in their susceptibility to certain things. Mm. And we are beginning to see 
clinicians, doctors going, listen, you know, my wife, we tested her blood sugar. You know, she can eat three chocolate sundaes and remain absolutely flat line. If I eat half a strawberry, I'm in clinical yeah. danger. And it just seems incredible that this is the first time we're, we're going, well, of course, mm. actually our organism is itself a bunch of traveling traveling vibrations and traveling bacteria and you know more than half our mass mm -hmm. is made up of non-human cells and so we're really we're a, a, a conversation with the universe uh, and it makes sense that we can be extremely different mm -hmm. uh, to each other and i think i agree with you completely that uh you know someone's experience um can be explainable by their own laws of physics mm -hmm. Uh, and that you know it doesn't mean that they didn't have it but simply that you know it's not something that that we could have perhaps yeah 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 one of um one of the things that you you deal with a lot in the book is this subject of odds you know you're just talking about the one in three chance of getting this or the one in seven chance of getting that and there seem to be kind of uh two things at play here perhaps there's the the fact of odds almost as a kind of blunt instrument when applied to to human experience that you know that we are such as you say infinitely complex infinitely unique beings that these kind of um mathematical probabilities are always going to be artificial when applied to um to the specific cases sure sure it's true the again we're also dealing with a very young, uh, a very young phenomenon, mm -hmm. uh, which is science. And if you think you know, really, we're only you know, a few generations away from, you know, surgeons having been barbers, and we're not far away from bloodletting with leeches. In fact, we still do that today because it's a clinically very clean way to to remove blood, uh, and so you know we have a notion that that we're so modern and just because we have cookie dough ice cream um which is pretty cool <laughs> uh, you know we think we're we're really at the forefront and that that's the end we've answered all these things and the truth is we're we're only just beginning mm -hmm. to understand and so we've been through this period where you know as you say they've applied odds to everyone equally and it's ridiculous and we can read and of course, the media feeds on that as well. Newspapers love to go, you know, people who eat bacon have got the one in three chance of this or that happening to them. And you go, well, that will apply to some people who eat bacon, but the risk will change day by day. They might do something tomorrow, which will completely remove the risk or halve the risk. And so it's a moving target, which they're trying to apply as a blanket. And that, that's mm -hmm. kind of silly. So the thrust of the book as well was to think about it. After 300,000 years as Homo sapiens, we know, we must know, we can assess risks and we must know what's good for us and what's not good for us. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are very quick to tell us what's good and what's not, uh, provided we can see it, of course, and provided we can, um, you know, provided it doesn't have, you know, hidden, the hidden elements. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it seems now time to break away from that and, and get back to our own feeling, look around and, mm -hmm. and see what's there for ourselves.
because that's the thing you kind of have the the instinct on one side where you, as, as you've just described you can kind of uh engage with things and uh, assess things based on yeah on, on, on feeling on intuition and then the other side you have this this question of sort of statistics and odds and information which has its very clear uses in in certain situations but also one thing you 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 talk a lot about is this idea of the kind of the sample fields like there's something very artificial about the idea of sort of uh, predicting certain things when there is so much information that needs to be kind of I mean you talk about uh, this kind of sense of cascades like stretching back to essentially the beginning of the universe to now of all these different factors which if the odds were going to be correctly calculated would need to be taken into account and yet obviously you know however advanced our science gets those that information will never you know we'll never have all of that information and even if we did would never probably have the capacity to to extrapolate from it yeah it's true well we've lived our lives i mean they've now discovered that it's very difficult to alter your cholesterol level with the food that you eat i mean there will be a generation of people on permanent medications mm. to combat cholesterol based on an idea that is now being disproven um and so we've it's exactly right we've spent so long with these odds which are supposedly fixed and it's ridiculous and we're frightened we live our lives according to that because we have a one in three chance of let's say developing ca cancer which is true but you go well the problem with that is that i will not know which group i fall into until mm -hmm. i either develop cancer or die from something else and so it's absolutely pointless for me. I mean, we're not talking about avoiding clear risks and smoking and stuff like that, which is, you know, it, it is a no-brainer. But the amount of things which in the back of our mind are causing anxiety and by which we're living, until we're dead, we will not know how that played out. Mm -hmm. And it's like giving, giving odds for a horse race, which we will never see the end of. Seems a pointless exercise, but it's beloved of you know certain tabloid press to say that you know one in three sandwich eaters you know are going to turn green by their fiftieth birthday. And you go, you will not know if you're one of them mm. until your fiftieth birthday, and then you might do it at fifty-one, or you might never. It's, it seems a pointless game to me. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the statistics are absolutely so malleable as well. Uh -huh. depending on how the question is asked you notice in the book something i was really interested to do we don't have the full uh, the full range of figures of course but mm -hmm. um but from what we can discover life expectancy for instance i mean i grew up with the idea that everyone was dead by 40 mm -hmm. you know 100 years ago because life was so difficult the truth is it includes infant mortality which we have oh, yeah. great strides in. If you look at it, my same class of person, my same background in ancient Greece had as good or slightly better life expectancy than I have today. If you, if you calculate it from five years old and up and take out the infant mortality question, the life expectancy 
more than 100 years, 150 years ago, was as good as it is today. Mm-hmm. And we're living on this, you know, it's it's a, a much beloved headline recently to say children born today are going to live for 120 years. Of course, they're not. In fact, expectancy is going down because our mm-hmm. lifestyle is, is, is horrible and the foods we eat is full of crap. Uh, but we have this notion that life expectancy is a measure of our progress in life. And you go, actually not. What we have been able to do is save more babies, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. But we don't realize we're looking at the figure, including um, including infant deaths. And if you take that out, actually, there were a lot of there were centenarians throughout the centuries. And we know of many of them. Mm-hmm. And so... One of my favorites, not a, not quite a centenarian, but um, was uh, Thomas Hobbes, the political wow. philosopher who who lived in, I think he was in his early 90s when he died. And this was back in like the, the 15th, 16th century. And uh, this was obviously the man who famously said that, ni- that life was nasty, brutish and short. And, uh, <laughs> in fairness, that. in the state of nature, life was nasty, brutish and short. But it uh, yeah. doesn't make quite such a good anecdote that, <laughs> that yeah, yeah. I have to agree. Um, you, you earlier you talked about this uh, the sort of the pointless game of, um, of sort of trying to you know interpret whether you will be the one in three people who, for example, can, um, contracts cancer during their life. But that subject of gaming is the the kind of almost the other side of the the question of of odds and and sort of and, and maybe luck and fate. And this is something you you go into, and this actually brings us to the um, this idea of the the little snake um himself uh, and this is something i have to admit like a real fascination with gambling because I, I i i'm not a natural gambler in that way like i don't think beyond the occasional lottery ticket i'd ever sort of i've never put money down in a casino i've never bet on a horse race or anything like that and i'm fascinated by the uh by what draws people to it and i think in um in in a big snake little snake i think i've probably got the sort of uh, the closest I've come to sort of to understanding what it is that makes people, um, you know, put put all of their money on, uh, you know, a dice throw or a coin toss, or well, in in this case, uh, the um, the little snake in the in the local lottery. So maybe maybe you can before we go into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how this 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 snake features in. Uh, in uh, Trinidad, the Trinidad Lottery and how and why it became important to you in this book. It was an interesting uh, motif. It's the motif of the book. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated when I got to Trinidad to discover that they have a daily lottery, a national lottery, based on what was originally an ancient Chinese game. And essentially, it's a one in 36 chance. So it's, it's like a, a roulette wheel of numbers, roulette wheel of numbers. Um, but along with the numbers, they include symbols. And so by including symbols, they're admitting the possibility that dreams and coincidences and superstitions can inform your choice of number. And that fascinated me. And it's the inroad, perfect inroad for this book because it's, uh, it's extremely human, but it means you can dream about a hog 
a snake, a vulture, any of these 36 symbols. And they also do combinations. You can buy a combination of numbers in the lottery because they gang up on each other. Mm-hmm. So you can have, you know, a snake and a hog and a vulture, and that will, that will mean a different thing again. So it's extremely complex. But the idea was that, you know, if you witness a shooting in a rum shop, you could actually put your money on the symbol of a dead man or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, and there would be a number corresponding to that. So Little Snake is number 27 in the game. Big Snake is number 35. And there was a moment relatively early on during my stay in Trinidad where I, I, I came home. I had this house up a steep, steep jungle hillside. And I got home, got to the front door, and there was a little snake on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. And I went through the usual, the usual uh, steps, wondering if it was a dangerous snake and what to do and etc. But it ended up being quite docile. It wasn't a boa or any of mm-hmm. the constrictors. It was some kind of a biting snake, but it seemed quite placid. And I, I managed to move it aside and uh, and eventually get in the house. When I mentioned that to a colleague later on. They said, oh, my God, we have to put your money on Little Snake tonight. (laughs) And that was the first I knew about this game. Uh, And I thought, why not? And Mm. uh, went to the, you know, when in Rome. uh, And I put my 10 bucks on Little Snake. And, of course, it won that night. Of course. And that's where the book book kicks off from. And Mm. it's not to say, and I'm very quick to say, look, one in 36 is not very long odds. Uh, and so that is quite an easy mathematical coincidence uh, if you look at it from the point of view of finding the snake and laying the bet. But if you look at it backwards, the point of view of having taken a bet on Little Snake on the same day, the first time in my life that mm-hmm. the Little Snake appeared to me on my doorstep, those are incredibly long odds. And... I use that as a motif to get into the notion of the the mathematics of life that we must deal with mm-hmm. every day. And everything we do, in a sense, is completely unique and the first of its kind in the universe. And we forget about that constantly tumbling lottery mm. of our every day just because we have control and we have our routines. Um, and we pretty much know what to expect. But as soon as you start thinking out of the box a little bit and think backwards about how the odds are actually unfolding and where they're coming from, uh, life looks quite different. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by the notion that, uh, also the notion that superstitions and dreams uh, could be the basis for stuff. And mm-hmm. that's another way into gambling as well. You know, a lot of gamblers pick horses by their names. We do that. That's our equivalent. Um, where, you know, if I see you know, Jolly Adam in a horse race, I'll pick that because mm. we're friends and and, uh, and and there's good feeling behind it. Uh, 
And so it was fun to explore the notion that yeah. uh, that we're connected also to the outside world. And and that sort of that motif seems to, in a way, to sort of straddle um, something which is probably not given enough sort of credence when we talk about um, sort of odds and gambling and this kind of thing is that sort of you know it may be at once meaningless you know you said it's sort of it is not particularly long odds and perhaps if you'd have put money on little snake and little snake had not won you wouldn't have given it a second thought and you wouldn't have had this book but that we kind of we sort of we imbue these events with meaning and as a result they take on a very real uh presence and have a very real impact in our lives absolutely yeah and that's i think you know, as I say, because of, of science, which I agree with, I come from a scientific family, I'm all for evidence-based progress, I'm all for peer-reviewed, um, you know, I'm frustrated at the current time we're in, you know, where you can take, you know, the work of 100 PhDs and, and some idiot on the internet say, that's wrong. Um, you know, I agree with all of that, but it's part of the same story. And mm. I think it's uh, the fact that by nature, I guess I'm arguing with the notion that our, our ideas, if they include symbols and if they include our subconscious drives, that those ideas should be illusions mm -hmm. and that they should be rustic and primitive. Mm -hmm. that's the way we're kind of headed you know where you you know you do certain things or you, you avoid certain numbers and then you have certain other favorite numbers that's a rustic you know, magical thinking mm -hmm. uh a stupid thing according to the, the the modern feeling of science anyway and i'm starting to say well is it really actually the fact that we by nature do things is probably more meaningful and it doesn't matter uh it doesn't matter if we can apply mathematics to them or not the fact that that we choose things is meaningful mm -hmm. and there are more and more branches of theoretical science starting to head in that direction which i'm fascinated and yeah. I, I cover a little bit of that in the book but yeah yeah, there yeah. Are now there are now branches of of quite mainstream mm -hmm. uh quantum physics especially saying you know the universe may run according to how we believe it should run we may actually be we may influence our reality by the way we think it can be or should yeah. be yeah 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 we do find this with people who win i'm fascinated with mm. the neuroscience of winning and there are now a couple of books going yes there is a syndrome of people you know being able to win uh by using their will if you like yeah yeah, yeah. And that that's fascinating so i think we're on the edge of learning some new stuff and um it was just good to have a little speculation about yeah. that i want to come on to a few of those points in a minute but just sticking first with this idea of why people gamble one of the things that really struck me um as, as fascinating that i I'd never i'd never found expressed this way somewhere else it's I suppose as a sort of a non-gambler you know sort of a certainly not a sort of um congenital gambler um I I suppose I always assumed that people who gambled 
assumed they were lucky people and that's why they did it because they assumed they were going to win and in fact what we find here is almost the reverse of that you sort of say that you know one good reason to gamble is because of you recognize the unfairness of things and um to turn a phrase and i noted it down here you said um asphyxiated by civilization of course we're going to clutch at pure maths the asphyxia of unfairness causes it and just like this idea that the coin toss or the dice throw or the roulette wheel might just be you know somebody who's kind of stuck in this unfair system and is sort of a victim of this unfair system this might be their out. This is why it might appeal to them because it's almost like they're throwing off all of the sort of accoutrements of civilization and class and all of this rubbish. And this could be their access to, to some sort of, uh, yes, yeah, sort of universal balance, I guess, or some sort of universal justice. And that, that rung very true to me. It's, yeah, I, I feel it increasingly. If you think, the odds of us inhabiting a planet in this universe still cannot be calculated mm -hmm. because we don't know if there's another one anywhere. Uh, according to the maths we currently use, it's likely that there should be one somewhere with some kind of life on it, but we still haven't found it. And so the odds of a, a thinking and feeling creature being existing in the universe are incredibly long that's a phenomenally long number and that's our starting point <laughs> i find that a magical 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 thing and so of course then we've gone okay one thing that is on one hand a blessing because it's adaptability on the other hand a curse for us is that we very quickly normalize and move on to the next level. Mm. And so very few of us, except for people who are lucky enough to be astrophysicists or astronomers, very few of us stand around going, wow, you know, how incredible that I should exist on a planet in a universe where apparently I'm the, you know, part of the only group. Mm. Um, well, we'd never get anything done, would we? Like, how, how would we feed the big uh, exactly. <laughs> capitalist? <laughs> Exactly. So we normalize it. And, you know, obviously we look up at the stars sometimes at night and go, wow. Uh, and you get you do get that that uh, that tingle. But it makes sense, therefore, that if we if we're thinking mathematically, um, we come from an extraordinary long number. And yet we won. If you mm -hmm. think that if the outcome was to exist then philosophically, we have won that, the longest bet in the universe so far. And so it makes sense, I think, that since then, of course, we've normalized it now. We're, you know, we're a warlike creature. We're a pain in the ass quite often. We complicate each other's lives infinitely. Uh, we're incredibly whimsical. We take ourselves too seriously. We're on top of each other. We live in societies and cities and we drive each other crazy and it makes sense that to just get a pure number to just touch some long odds thing is in a way reaching back to the original win which is our, our existing at all philosophically and I, I just wonder if uh, if that 
subconsciously doesn't also influence us it makes mm. such sense yeah 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 and that sort of that's that sort of subconscious um space we're almost occupying i guess between the sort of scientific knowledge we have and the sort of the animals that we are with a i don't know if it's a hardwired but certainly a developed sense of uh the mythical the magical um one thing you do in this book is you sort of construct concepts that sort of almost bridge that gap now so there are two uh, both connected to, to mathematics actually which i'm gonna um ask you to give kind of like a, a potted explanation of for our for our listeners is this concept of mythematics which you uh, you mentioned a few times uh and also connected to that this idea of uh a, of vivid maths um so could you just talk a little bit about about those two concepts for us sure mythematics it was another uh, fabulous reason to um, to use Trinidad as a setting for this because it's a place full of magic and with a lot of supernatural creatures. And they have, for instance, the Sukuyan mm -hmm. is uh, an old woman who can shed her skin at night and fly as a ball of fire and suck your blood um there are who you've spirits. met yeah who I get to meet in the book weirdly enough no spoilers um, but i just <laughs> just leave that yeah, there no, actually yeah i met one for real it's crazy and uh there are the spirits of uh the spirits of women who died in childbirth mm -hmm. and there are the spirits of children and they all have quite complex routines there are certain situations under which you discover them and there are certain antidotes and certain things so these are the pretty complex myths um, and the point i was trying to make in the book is that actually we face in our in real life some quite more terrifying things mm. than any of these myths some of the realities we can face. And also these myths, if you think about it, uh, deal with real risks. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they are placeholders for certain things that can happen to us. For instance, La Diablesse mm -hmm. is uh, a, a certain mythical uh, lady who is, has the face of a corpse, but her face is hidden by a veil and a wide brimmed hat and she has one cloven hoof under her skirts and she prowls dances and parties looking to abduct uh, people and take them into the forest where they will die and it's a pretty complicated story but in a way you think you know what are the risks when we go out and get drunk and come back from parties and at the same time as i was writing this we had some you know not one but a couple of real tragedies on the streets of london mm -hmm. the young people meeting the wrong person and it leads to their death and you go that is in our scientific world that is happening and is just as terrifying as any of these myths mm -hmm. and so it occurred to me that 
all these very complicated myths actually are just placeholders, very logical placeholders for things that already exist and which we deal with. I cannot imagine the terror of being abducted off a street in London in the modern day and captured mm. uh, and taken away and killed somewhere, which, which happens, unfortunately and tragically, much too frequently, but it's, that's a real world risk. And these myths, which we say, oh, that's yeah, an old wives' tale, what a bunch of rubbish. You know, actually, it's not. That is a placeholder for exactly that same situation. And so we would, you know, now we use statistics. Then we mm. use these much more wide-ranging and available myths, mm. which were, which served the same purpose and, and spoke of the same danger. And so we haven't upgraded at yeah. all. Although, in, in, and in perhaps in one very important sense, we we might have downgraded in as much as like, you know, if you tell somebody, you know, the chance of your child being abducted on the streets of London and killed is one in a million. Well, if you are that one in a million, knowing that statistic does nothing for you in an emotional psych or psychic sense. Whereas, exactly. you know, not saying that these kind of these myths or these religions or these kind of beliefs will necessarily provide comfort, but they seem to sort of uh, occupy the space in a much kind of, I guess, fuller way than a statistic like one in a million, for example. Sure. And they, they draw on our own. I mean, we have to remember just about every religion that we've come up with includes ourselves in the universal question. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's religious knows that God also is inside us and that we're we're part of God. Uh, science will also tell you that the universe, of course, we are part of the conversation and we're, we're part of the cause and effect of the whole. And um, it seemed much more logical to use things like myths, which draw on our whole sense, on our subconscious, on our creativity mm. and stuff like that. And as I say, the very real risks, the risks of losing a child which still happens way too often and, and uh, is you know, an appalling thing for someone to suffer. Mm -hmm. These were described by myths. As for vivid mass, um, I found there are certain times and there are certain places where coincidences cluster and gang mm -hmm. up. And where if we say, for instance, there are times we, we must have all had that moment where we start humming a song that we haven't heard in 10 years and a minute later it comes on the radio. Mm -hmm. And now there's no way to recreate that in a laboratory. And so your skeptics will go, well, that, you know, that didn't happen. Or you just think it happened. You just thought it happened. We know it happens. So this kind of thing happens. It's mathematical. That's fine. We say, well, that can be a coincidence. That's perfectly fine. It's a mathematical coincidence. But there are certain times and certain places where those coincidences, where the mathematics seems to cluster and gang up. And we all will have had weeks, months, nights, or single hours like that, where things are going ping, 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 full of mm -hmm. kismet. And the world has them as well. We're in a big change cluster right now. Unbelievable unbelievable things on top of unbelievable things and 
only some of them are human fault. The rest mm. are occurring from nature by themselves. And so the notion of vivid mass, I was fascinated to, to ponder if in a way we could generate it, if we could create mm. it. Uh, but certainly to finally admit that there are some times when things are weird and they stay weird for a while. Uh, and other times then we can live through long periods without any kind of, you know, any lucky break or any kind mm. of coincidence at all. But that's the thing is that that, 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 that weirdness um, is something which I think is, is crucial here because it seems to me like a lot of the, um, let's say the sort of the, rational skeptical scientific viewpoint in recent decades has seemed to sort of be determined to kind of almost to unweird the world in a way and yet as you point out in the book the cutting edge of science you know from from einstein onwards really has been essentially re-weirding science and if you're looking for the kind of the you know the the sort of the rational what would seem to us to our sort of you know limited human brains the most rational explanation you're not going to find it in uh, in the most recent science that's being done yeah it's absolutely true and thinking about it and i don't make this point in the book because uh, you know it's not a political book but it's a capitalist question um, unfortunately information is now a profit center mm -hmm. and so you know to marshal things in such a way that we at least feel that we can buy an answer mm. from somewhere. We can treat our anxiety. On the one hand, the anxiety is being caused by all this information, but it can be treated by the same information. We have mm. to pay in some way to get that. And so you know, science and, and unfortunately, this to say nothing bad about science itself or about scientists but unfortunately the the times we live in uh, require people to be much more public in order to be funded for their research mm. and so getting funding for your research requires you to really announce breakthroughs and uh, you know get involved with media and and have a, a profile and so you know it's uh, it means a lot of things have gotten in between. Uh, as you say, the, the gorgeous front end of science mm. where they're still wondering and where people honestly admit they, they really don't know very much at all to this market end where it's like we know exactly this is a 100% mm. solution or your money back. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, in a way it gets back to the uh, the tyranny of civilization that we have we have possessed that wonderment and uh, all the uh, the information gathering mm -hmm. uh, ideas and now we're selling them on to each other or we're using them to bash each other over the head mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't mean that outside there we ourselves can't still wonder and there is another great branch of, of theoretical science uh, saying that things may turn up the way we think they will or the way we believe they will uh, in terms of our own life. There, mm. there are branches of science saying if you believe in an afterlife, it's theoretically possible that you will go to one and that if you don't believe in one, it's possible that you will not mm -hmm. and that you will, you will 
you know, and so everything, there's everything to play for here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, much less reason to complain about losing our tanning goggles. <laughs> and to think about that, you know, this is really weird now, but actually it's kind of fun. Uh-huh. So that kind of brings me on to the, I guess, the, the last thing I'd like to talk about. And you, you mentioned it earlier is um, that sense of sort of, I'd maybe say influencing luck or influencing chance is maybe a bit of a sort of uh, a bit too straightforward a way to put it. The, an expression that you use in the book is that certain people or certain spaces having power to spare. Um, and I, I kind of, there's something that really chimed with me there, that idea of sort of, uh, and it might be a particular person or it might be everybody at a particular time or in a particular place having this kind of, I guess, would it be a, a sort of a confluence of, of odds in some way, which which perhaps gives us the, the capacity to in some way bend luck or chance or the universe to our will. Yeah, I'm fascinated with that. The, I think um, all of us will have had that moment or those moments, those times when through sheer force of will and, and without thinking, without agonizing whatsoever, we've gone bish bash bosh. Mm-hmm. We've said, I'm, I'm knocking that down and we do it and it's done. And afterwards you go, wow, okay, that really worked. And on another day, it might not have worked. Mm-hmm. Um, human power, I'm fascinated with the notion of can we, and I don't mean you know, bullying or bludgeoning a situation, but the clear, calm, determined will mm-hmm. focused in a direction and I think it's proven and true you know if we see the the ravine uh, between cliffs and think that we can jump over it mm-hmm. we can jump over it and if we look at that and think I'm going down the gap we contend to go down the gap mm-hmm. so we we have to agree that our minds are controlling you know kind of like the tesla if you buy a tesla apparently and you start running out of power apparently they can phone the car from headquarters and open up a bit of extra power in the battery is that right <laughs> yeah apparently if you call and go, i'm nearly out of power and i can't find a charger they can go okay wait a minute and they can talk to the car and and free up a bit more power <laughs> which i think is wonderful but it's actually all they're doing is i think what we can do I've long been a believer in uh, just visualizing. I don't agonize or or meditate, but before I sleep, if I've got something big to do the next day, I'll go, listen, you know, just just for a moment, picture that happening well. And first, and tell yourself that you're going to, and that it's going to turn out fine. Mm -hmm. I believe in that, just kind of setting the expectation. Yeah, yeah. And... um, after I finished writing this book, actually, um, there's a fabulous book by the Trinity College professor, Trinity Dublin, professor of neuroscience. Uh, and I think it's called something like Where Confidence Comes From. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting ideas along these lines, but apparently they have discovered what they call the hot hands effect where you can generate a winning streak. Yeah. Now, they refer to things in which you physically 
participate. So I can't apply that particular discovery to say, you know, getting the right numbers off a dice. Although I'd be inclined to think that's also possible. Yeah. But they, as far as like sporting achievements and, and things that we actually have contact with in our hands, they have discovered an effect where we can yes. generate win after win after win in a streak. And you that is the beginning of what we're talking <clears throat> about. You put me in mind of something. Um, there's a moment in the book where you um, you talk about the a trickster at a beer shop tossing the cigarette into uh, into his, uh, from his toes into his mouth. And I'm going to tell this very quickly, but um, I remember once years ago, I was at a uh, comedy club or in a pub a basement in Brixton, I think it was. And there was the comedian Daniel Kitson on who is, I think, one of the most talented stand-up comedians of our age and he was comparing and at a moment he had this bottle of water he tossed it behind him and it landed on a little ledge about three meters up and from that moment he sort of made out he said oh you know of course he'd done it on purpose and he was inviting the other acts to try it and of course none of them could do it and the final act of the evening this guy said to him no come on you know you've had too much fun with this if, if you're so brilliant do it again and he strolled onto stage, he took this bottle and, and you could just feel it in the air. You knew he was gonna do it. It was like, it was the most ridiculous, pointless activity. And he tossed it up and it landed there. And I've never been in a room with just, just full of so much kind of joy <laughs> at this kind of, this collective power. experience and this power, exactly. He was, and I, I mean, it's, you know, I'd, I'd love to know if anybody else that was in that room remembers that, or even if this Kitson remembers it himself, because it really, every time I think of that sort of, yeah, that kind of energy that you just described, I think of this, this particular moment and the effect it had on the audience as well. And yeah. it was just, it just became, the night from that moment became this kind of bacchanal. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's the absolute perfect example of what I'm talking about. And have you seen it's a careless power too? It's mm. like, uh, you know, they're not, they're not, it's not inwardly focused. Um, it's just like a certainty. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a certainty that that's going to happen and not an unwise one either. It, it's really is bending physics. I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. and I think we've all felt it to some degree and, um, and some of us are able to generate it to a, a larger or lesser extent, but I'm sure that's the power that accounts for people lifting lorries off of children and all these amazing one-off situations uh which we later go well you know that's incredible where they just go i'm doing it and they do it um and it you know it means that we do have extraordinary influence over the laws of physics and i'd love mm. to think that that we could go even further than that yeah uh, so that's what we need to work on you know I'm trying to work on a pizza being delivered without me calling anyone. <laughs> I, I still have some work to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, that that's all we've got time for. So you're going to have to keep us updated on that, uh, on the progress of this over the, I'll the coming weeks and months. Gets you. Yeah. <laughs> I will, if you come around, I'll pay for one and, and we'll try together for the second one. Sounds good. At least we'll get a few beers in uh, while we wait for it. Yeah, I look forward to that. Well, look, man, this has been such a pleasure. Um, Little Snake, Big Snake is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, uh, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online shop, and is available wherever you get your books or wherever you get your books, whichever independent bookstore you get your books from, I should say. Um, all that's left for me to say is DVCPA, thank you so much, so much for joining us today.
Thanks, Adam. It's a joy. Uh, what a wonderful chat. And um, be safe, yeah. everyone. Use your powers wisely. There you go. Use your powers wisely. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>